Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative nature advocates and naturalists on the planet. If you have a fascination with nature and ecology, this podcast is for you. I create this podcast as a personal passion, and I'm working hard to turn Nature's Archive into something even bigger. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on your favorite podcast service, and share this episode with a friend. And as I look to expand and improve my offerings, please also consider becoming a patron through Patreon. You'll get special perks like stickers, exclusive content, and more. The link is in the show notes. Thank you. My guest today is Sienna McKim. Sienna is a PhD student at UC Santa Barbara studying sponges in the kelp forest, which is arguably one of the most iconic marine communities. In particular, she's looking at sponge symbionts, basically the tiny marine organisms that use sponges as habitat. Today we hear about Sienna's unique path to marine biology, developed in part from an unlikely interest in algae while at the University of Michigan and accelerated by a love of scuba diving. We then quickly transition to the wild diversity of sponges, including glass sponges the size of a minivan, to sponges that sneeze, and even carnivorous sponges. As mentioned, Sienna is looking at sponge symbionts, so we discuss that research and some of the discoveries and mysteries that she's tracking. Sienna shares tons of fun facts in this episode, too. For example, I had to ask a cliche SpongeBob SquarePants question that might be on all of your minds, but I was really surprised at the answer. I'll just say that you'll have to listen to find out the reality of sponge fashion choices. And of course, Sienna offers tips for locating sponges yourself, whether you're on docks, in tide pools, snorkeling, scuba diving, or even in fresh water. This interview was a lot of fun, and Sienna's enthusiasm really shows. You can find Sienna on Instagram as I'm Lichen Today and on iNaturalist with the same handle. And that's lichen, like the symbiotic fungal algae organism that we've discussed on the show in the past. I love a good play on words. So without further delay, Sienna McKim. Okay, Sienna, welcome to the show. Thank you. As we were talking here a little bit ago, this is a topic that I know almost nothing about. And I tried to do research and the language, the biology, it was so foreign to me that I'm not sure much stuck. So I'm hoping that you'll be tolerant of (laughs) my questions today and, and that I'll probably learn a lot from you. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. I am not a sponge physiologist. So a lot of that is also foreign to me, but I'm excited to answer any of the questions that I can. All right. So where did you grow up and how did you get interested in nature and then sponges? I grew up in San Diego next to the ocean. So thankfully I had the privilege to go swimming in the ocean all the time. And I had a friend who would take me surfing. And so I would do like the stingray shuffles And I was really aware of these animals that were around the beach. And sometimes we go swimming with like leopard sharks, which are really common in San Diego, like at the La Jolla shores. And so I was interested in marine biology pretty early on, just because that was part of my life. But then I strayed away from that a little bit because I was so also into art. And so I was just more interested in doing paintings and like sculptures. And so then I went over to University of Michigan for my undergrad. And there I did a lot of my art. And but a lot of the art was focused on things in nature, especially organisms that people didn't really care about, like mold. 
I have some paintings of some moldy carrots <laughs> and of like fungi. And then I took in my final year, I took a freshwater uh, algae class. And I was like, oh, algae is like lame. It's just like that green stuff that grows in ponds and nobody really wants it. But I realized how fascinating it is. And it's this whole group of organisms that I never realized was present. And that there's so many organisms that aren't animals or plants or fungi. There's like this whole other world of organisms. And so I was like, whoa, there's so many things to explore. And that got me like super engaged in nature, made me feel like, wow, I'm like actually doing some more discovery. Because in this class, we had a research project. And in the research project, me and my partner discovered a new species of diatom. And so diatoms are a freshwater algae, and they live in silica in this little glass house. And they live in these like green jelly blobs that are around the lakes in northern Michigan. And so I was like, wow, nobody's ever looked at these before. Like I just felt like I made some kind of impact on science by discovering a species. And I'm like, there must be so many more things that nobody's ever looked at that are just like right around our neighborhood. And so that's just what got me really into doing research because I'm like, there's so much to do. So the diatom that you discovered, was it just like in a water sample that you had pulled or did you see it? Like you, you're walking near the lake and you're like, what's this mass of stuff or yeah. how did that work out? <laughs> so we were going on field trips and like a lot of the classes were really fun. It was just like walking around weird wetlands and just scooping up water samples. And we kept seeing these green blobs everywhere. And so what these green blobs are, they're actually a protozoa, which are like not an animal, but they sort of act like animals and they're microscopic, but they create these, they live in these colonies. And so they're all like in this circular donut shaped colony. And then they all have this mucus around them. So they just make a big mucus, like jelly blob donut in the water. And so I was like, oh, well, it's like mucus, like sticky. There must be diatoms inside of it. And so we looked at the difference between the diatoms and the, and the mucus versus the water around it. And we found this diatom that was nowhere in the water around these jelly blobs, but super high concentration in these jelly blobs. And so it was this new like commensal relationship that nobody had ever found. And also the species of diatom had never been described. And so we were like, whoa, like we were the ones to like discover species in our class. Everybody was super excited for us. Yeah, I, that's a common theme I hear from a lot of people where there are these overlooked organisms that leads to a discovery and just like the novelty of, wow, this whole other world exists and we still don't know about yeah. it for 7 billion people on the planet. And there's still all this that we're missing every day. Yes, yes. I'm sure every one of those 7 billion people could discover a new species. There's so much to find, especially if you just go to the microbes. Yeah. Oh my God, don't even talk about that. That's... <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. It's not like we're discovering Bigfoot or a new bear. It's usually small things, but still, it's there's just so much, like I said before, the novelty <laughs> of it. Yeah, totally. And so I was doing all these freshwater stuff, and I came back to San Diego where I'm from, and I was like, it's time to fulfill my dream of scuba diving. And so 
I started my class and the first time we went out in the ocean, I dropped down. This was at like the Hoya Shores, which is like the sandy flat area. And we dropped down like 20 feet and the sand was like moving. It was covered in these animals called sea pens. And basically they looked like plushy feathers coming out of the sand, almost like the old school fountain pens that were like quills that were like feathers. And they were moving and our instructor poked one and it shot back down into the sand. And I was like, whoa. And there was like sand dollars everywhere. And I was like, okay, there's these sea pens. Why has nobody ever talked about this before? They're everywhere in the sand, just all along the beach here. And nobody's ever talked about it. And they look so weird. I'm like, okay, confirmed. There are so many marine creatures that don't get enough attention and that we just don't know a lot about, even though they're so common or everywhere, just in so close proximity to like a city. So that that was the moment I was like, okay, it's true. I am going to be a marine biologist. Yeah. And just, I think it was just this week or last week, the Ologies podcast. I don't know if you listen to many podcasts, but I she interviewed a researcher from Cal Academy of Sciences. And I think a big chunk of that was about sand dollars. At least they, they, there was at least a portion of it that was. And yeah, I had no idea that so little was known about something that seems so common. Yeah, I think everybody has the experience, if you've walked on a beach, of finding the old kind of shell of a sand dollar. But there's such much more interesting creatures than what you would think from just seeing that little dollar-shaped yeah. shell. So you fulfilled this destiny of scuba diving and seeing these yes. creatures, and it, it triggered uh, the next stage. So tell me a little bit about that next stage. What Where did you go from there once your eyes were open, yeah. open to this amazing world? Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. So scuba diving changed my life, basically. <laughs> and also, it was right before the pandemic. And so... I got to scuba dive during the pandemic because you can go in the ocean. There's nobody around. And so I was photographing all these specimens, the classic little Olympus TG5, and was taking photos of these organisms all along the La Jolla shores in the canyon. So I was taking all these photos and I was posting them to iNaturalist, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. For people who don't know, it's just a place where amateur naturalists and scientists can come together and post photos of organisms that they find. And so I was posting a bunch of these, to me, really weird sea creatures because nobody in my dive groups were like didn't know anything about them. And on there, I connected with this whole community of people who knew some more things <laughs> about these invertebrate animals than I did. And one of those people was actually Tom Turner. So... I was posting all these sponges and tunicates from scuba diving, but then also I got really into looking on docks and tide pooling and finding sponges and things there. And he was commenting on them, like identifying them for me. And so I was like, who's this guy? So I went to his profile and I was like, oh, he's at UCSB at this university. He's a researcher. And I was like, that's cool. I wonder what he, you know, he researches and, if that's, if these invertebrate animals are something that I could study. And so I can't remember if he reached out to me or if I reached out to him, but basically we started talking. He's, oh, have you considered going to grad school? And I was like, well, sort of, now because I can't find a job. 
because it's the pandemic. So I was definitely considering, oh, yeah, I should consider that. That would be cool. He's like, yeah, you could come to Santa Barbara and study sponges or tunicates or whatever. I was like, okay, that sounds good. And so then a year later, I was like, okay, I've applied and let's like do this. So <laughs> that's how I met my advisor was on iNaturalist and was able to get to this point of being a grad student at UCSB. And now I'm studying sponges and the other things that I'm working on. Hey, nature enthusiast. Do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com slash donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. Yeah, iNaturalist is a magic place. There's so many connections that are made. And, and I think that gets yes. overlooked sometimes. A lot of people are just so focused on what is the identification of this thing, but there's a social element to iNaturalist too. And yeah, Santa Barbara, not a yes. bad place to be. What What is your specific area of study then? What do you tell people that you meet on the street? Yes. So it's really it's always really fun to tell people what I study because they're like, okay, we are like specific or I didn't really think about that. <laughs> and I study the sponges in the kelp forest. And more specifically, I study these tiny crustaceans that live in the sponges in the kelp forest. And so it's this group of crustaceans called Paracarida and includes amphipods, also known as scuds in freshwater ecosystems, but also isopods, which are like our roly-poly looking guys that are in the ocean, and also tineids, which are like little mini lobster looking guys. Hooded shrimp, which are just a very weird, crunchy guy. <laughs> and then opossum shrimp. And so it's, I'm obsessed with this group just because they're all like basically tiny <laughs> and they sort of just put themselves into places all the time. Like when I would go tide pooling, I'd always have them crawling around all over my subjects and I'm like, Oh, they're everywhere. But yeah, I study what they're, what are they doing in these sponges and Thinking about sponges as a habitat and as like a home and how sponges themselves are this ecosystem and this whole world of interactions that nobody's looked at. And so to me, it, it checks the box of being this sci-fi world that's on our planet, that's in our backyard, but nobody knows anything that's happening in there. And yeah, there's it's not a field that there's a lot of people in. A lot when people are studying sponges, they're usually studying more like the microbes, so like the bacteria and other small organisms. But these are on a slightly larger scale. These are like the invertebrate animals that are that are in the sponges. Perfect. That's a it's a perfect topic for the podcast because I love to get into these ecological stories and the interconnectedness yeah. of things. Why don't we start down that path a little bit more and well, in a way, back up and get on the path and just tell me what is a sponge? Like what's, what do they look like? 
what's the diversity? Just characterize what you find around, say, sounds like a lot of your experiences on the Southern California coast. Yeah. So sponges are super cool and you'll find out why. <laughs> They're one of the oldest invertebrate animals. So invertebrates are just the group of animals that don't have backbone, which is most of the animals on our planet. And sponges date back to there was a new study that dates them back to 890 million years old, which is so old. Pre-Cambrian, which is crazy. Imagine the size of the birthday cake. <laughs> oh my God. The number of candles would burn down <laughs> the whole house. But the, yeah, they've been around for so long. And what I'm seeing today is probably similar enough to what was back then. And what I'm seeing today are these sponges in the kelp forest that are all sorts of colors. They can be bright blue. A lot of them are white, but they can also be yellow and pink and purple. And they can take on a lot of different shapes, depending on where they are, what, what placement they're in. If they're in an area of high uh, wave action or are they in the sun, that can also determine what it looks like or what color it is. And so... My favorite ones are these group of sponges called Clatherina, and they're also called net sponges. And they basically look like a bunch of tubes that are all connected and wrapped around on top of each other into a big ball. And so what you're seeing is this sort of fibrous material that's made out of spicules. So spicules are their skeleton. So they don't have a skeleton per se like us humans have. They have these tiny components called spicules. And they can be made out of silica, like glass, or they can be made out of calcium carbonate. And so they can just come in so many different shapes because they can rearrange their spicules to have all these different shapes, like lobes or pillars or just the brain, all like ridges and stuff. Yeah. And... You can find them everywhere. So do they, when you talked about some might be in sunny areas or some might be where there's uh, tidal action or wave action, are these all different? Would you consider them specialists? Have they evolved to be in those very specific habitats? Yeah. So similar to other organisms, they prefer certain depths. So some of them I'll only see in the tide pools and some of them I'll only see while scuba diving. And so they've evolved to be in these areas. And the whole sun thing is really interesting because they have the microbes that live inside of them, which can be hundreds of different types of microbes. And some of them have cyanobacteria, which is a type of photosynthetic bacteria. And so sometimes, especially on the docks, when I'm looking over, some of the sponges will be super purple or blue when they're in the sun but then like when they're in the shade they can be like more like gray and a lot of there hasn't been a lot of research on that and it's not we're not sure if it's from the photosymbionts like the photosynthesizing bacteria that's inside of them playing a role in that but they are so like amorphous sometimes <laughs> like sometimes they can just be blob shaped and other times they can be very structured. And we're not 100% sure why. It definitely has to do with 
the environment and things like the turbidity of the water or the placement that they're on in the habitat. So that could be like the same species in different placements could look very different. Mm, yeah. And so we call that they're like, they have cryptic morphology or their appearance can vary widely. And some other cool sponges that I don't study currently, but I'm hoping to study are deep sea sponges called glass sponges. And those ones they've found can be huge, like six feet tall. And there is one found somewhere in the Pacific that was like the size of a minivan. And so their size also can just range wildly too, depending on where they are. So a deep sea sponge, is that something you'd have to access like with a submersible or something? It's beyond scuba? Yeah. Yeah. Or like a remotely operated vehicle, something that can get down there. And they're all attached to some sort of substrate or are there like free floating sponges? So they are almost always attached to something. So usually something hard. There are a lot of sponges too, though, that are on the sediment. But the ones in the kelp forest primarily are on something hard, like rocks or like another surface that's hard, like a dock. So then how do they make their living? They're attached. And you you mentioned the movement of the water and wave action and things like that. What are they doing? How are they feeding? How are they growing? They are, imagine a sponge, and they have holes in them. So they have tiny little holes, like pinhole holes all around them. And those are the holes they use to suck in water and filter their food. So they usually eat smaller things like bacteria or viruses in the water. And then they shoot it out of these larger holes, usually towards the top of the sponge. And so they're filter feeding, but then all the stuff that they're putting back out in the water can be classified as dissolved organic matter. Basically, that's just another word for like poop or aka food for other animals in the ecosystem. And so they're pumping out all this grouped up food for other animals. And that's a lot of what they do (laughs) is filter feed. But then like what I'm studying, their physical bodies can also be habitat for other animals. And especially in deep sea ecosystems or glass sponge reefs, they make up a lot of just the physical environment that other animals use and hang out on. Oh, so many places to go. So one thing that came to mind when you're describing the filter feeding action and how they will push out the excrement (laughs) from larger holes towards the top, there's a bunch of videos I know on YouTube, and there's one in particular that I'll link to uh, in the show notes where some diver was actually putting in some dyed water. He said it was safe <laughs> for the sponge. So I, I trust that it actually was, but you could actually see this filtering action and how quickly the dye would suddenly come out of these holes. It's just amazing. Like the efficiency of the sponge. And that too is just incredible and in how they are able to draw that water in, which you don't see unless it's kind of like if you do a smoke test or something in the atmosphere, but with dyed water in the ocean. Yeah. They don't look like they're doing much, but they are sucking in large amounts of water. And there's a lot of studies on how efficient of filter feeders they are and combating these viruses that might be in the water. So why don't we get into, I know you're super excited about the area of study. Like what, so now who's living on these? What are they doing? Like, how are these organisms making a living? Yeah. So there's, I'm right now 
I'm studying just a couple examples of sponges and their crustacean associates. So summer is the best for collecting. So I've done some preliminary collecting to just see if my ideas are actually happening. <laughs> and so I've seen these soft sponges. It's called a heliclona. They're super purple. At least these ones are. And they look like they're making little volcanoes. And inside of the sponge are really weird isopods. So the isopods, again, are these roly-poly looking crustaceans. And these isopods are weird because when they're larvae, when they're like babies, they're sucking the blood of fish. And so you'll find the babies, the larvae on these fish sucking the blood, but then the adults are hanging out in these sponges. And so when I looked at the species of that was in this sponge called a nanthid, they were this species that hadn't really been documented in California. I've looked at the guides and I've looked at keys and I can't find anything that looks like this nanthid isopod. And so just in like my first sample, I'm like, oh my God, there's something that is either invasive or is new to science. And so that's what I'm expecting to see is these crustaceans in these sponges just because nobody's looked at the sponges as a habitat. And the relationship between this sponge and this isopod, I'm not fully, is not fully known. But I think they're using the sponges as just a place to mate and have babies. And yeah, <laughs> a lot of in this group in nanthids, a lot of the males will have a harem of females. And so they probably go to these sponges as like a social place to find the females and the females to find the males. And so that's a really weird a whole system that I really want to investigate more. That, that's got to make it really simultaneously exhilarating and uncomfortable because some of the basic questions that come up, you just have to discover. <laughs> it's, it's on you. It's you know, the, weight, yeah. the weight of the world is on you for this discovery. Yeah. And I'm just like, so there are other observations of these nanthid isopods being in sponges, but yeah, it's just weird to see an example of it and, maybe a species that we don't really know a lot about. Yeah, well, it so. begs so many questions like, who are the predators of these isopods? Are they able to get at the isopods when they're in the sponge? Is it a protective area? Mm, right. Lots of interesting things. Yeah. And there's also predatory isopods. So these long, noodly looking ones, and they're creeping around. And I've seen them in the tide pools, but not on any of my sponges. But there are other predatory that eat other than amphipods. So they could potentially be doing something, but I haven't seen anything yet. I assume there's technologies like equivalent to a trail cam. Like, Can you actually put a camera on and mm. monitor for an extended period and see what interactions occur? Yeah, I think you, you definitely could. But I think the field of view would sort of be difficult because they're so small. They're like mm. smaller than a grain of rice, basically. Okay. And so I think that would be really hard with all the noise around right. the sponge. But there are, I know at Scripps uh, Research Institute of Oceanography down at um, San Diego, they've developed these little robots that will be able to go inside of corals and see what kind of hiding invertebrates are in the corals. And so if we could just get something that's like even smaller to go in the sponges, that would be great. Yeah, 
Hopefully there's an innovative nanotechnologist out there <laughs> that can help you. Yeah. So until then, I'm just diving and collecting these sponges and taking them back to the lab and teasing apart all of these, the sponge versus what crustaceans I'll find. And I'm finding a lot of other things too, but I'm focusing on these group of crustaceans just to have some clear focus. And yeah, I think there's enough to find with just this one group. You started to list off earlier several different, I don't know if they were families, but lots, lots of different types of organisms, that, invertebrates that you'd seen. So is these are the ones that you're focusing on now, but, but it sounds like there's plenty of other ones to look at too. Yeah. Pericarita is like the super order. Okay. And then like isopods is the order or isopoda. So yeah, I've got isopods. And then also one group that I've really been looking at and learning a lot about are amphipods. And so that's just another order of these crustaceans. And a lot of last quarter was just me in the lab spending hours looking at one specimen and trying to ID it. So you have to look at their tiny structures on their bodies, like their tail or their telson, which is super tiny. So you have to dissect that off and look at it under a light microscope. And so I am now thinking about this way that scientists used to be. So a lot of scientists used to be a lot more exploratory, collecting things, taking them back at the lab and looking at them. Something that you would call more of a taxonomist. And so doing this last quarter made me feel you know, more like an original scientist, like a, more of a taxonomist and just looking at these organisms for what they are. So that, that's been a lot of my work recently is just staring at these crustaceans. Have you found anyone else in the world that, that is doing anything similar, like that you can draw from? Like, for example, maybe the species um, are, are, are different in South Africa than they are in California, but there may be some similar relationships that exist or, or things like that. Have you found anything like that? Yeah, so somehow I keep running into papers that are like from the 90s, but there's a couple of people who did studies on this one island off of Brazil and then up in the Arctic. And so basically what they were doing was just seeing what's the total number of invertebrates in these sponges. So they were looking not just at the crustaceans, but also bristle worms, like polychaete worms, and another weird group of animals called bryozoa. And so I haven't necessarily found anybody that's this specific looking into sponges just for this group, or like looking at a lot of different sponges to see what's in them. It's usually more, okay, we're looking at this one sponge because of this reason. Oh, and then we also found like these cool things inside of it. So what I'm doing I, is more like setting the foundation for this field, I feel like, at least here in Southern California, and trying to just see what's up because nobody's looked at it. Right. So what are there actually with these weird relationships between sponges and, and uh, crustaceans or is this sort of just a like happenstance so that's when more genetic work is going to be important that i'll do later on this year is is there an evolutionary relationship between these sponge homes and the amphipods or isopods that are in them it's blowing my mind how many things there are to tease apart i'm sitting here thinking okay you you go out and you might you say you just collect one sponge that could keep you busy for years, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, like 
the samples that I've looked at so far, one sponge has taken me you know, five hours to just get through to see, to pick apart all the different crustaceans that are in it, and then to attempt to identify all the all those crustaceans. Yeah, there's a lot to, to do, but that's what I'm excited about. I just love looking at the microscope and teasing apart these clumps of biodiversity. Depending on your goal, then you then know all of the species, and then that's another rabbit hole to go down. Okay, what are their lifestyles? Why might they be here? And then the genetics aspect, like maybe this is actually a little bit different than what's been documented in the past. Uh, they just look the same. I don't know. Yeah, so much. So your goal, you mentioned that sort of the peak time for a collection is coming up. I assume there's a way to preserve the specimens that you collect so that you can you know, look at them with a little less time pressure. What I've been doing recently is just diving, collecting, and then immediately going to the lab, which is a lot of work. But I can also take these sponge samples and freeze them. And that'll be good for preserving the DNA. But then also a lot of these crustaceans are really colorful. And when you freeze them, the color usually stays longer than you would by putting them in something like alcohol or ethanol. Okay. Yeah. So I'm hoping to collect this summer and then in the fall, do all the grunt work of, of organizing and looking. Yeah. Makes sense optimize the time that you have. Yeah. So being ignorant of a lot of marine habitats, I'm curious about back to maybe sponges at a more macro level than, uh, than this sort of micro level that we've been at. Do they, is there much known about like succession in marine environments and when do sponges show up in a marine environment? Yeah. So it's easy to see succession on land because there's a clear plot of land and then the weeds come in and all the other plants with the marine environment it's happening all the time it's just harder to see especially if you're not like scuba diving or but there is a type of succession it's not i would say it's not as dramatic usually as it would be like let's say a, a wildfire like clears out a big area it's not necessarily like that in the ocean but we do have storms and other seasonal changes that will wipe out certain habitats. So like sometimes during like the summer, if it gets too warm, a lot of the kelp will just die. And so then that kelp forest is not there anymore all of a sudden. And sometimes, usually the kelp comes back and it's totally fine. But sometimes we get kelp urchin barrens. And so this is when the kelp disappears, not necessarily because of the temperature of the water, but because of these sea urchins that are all around eating it and the kelp not being able to recover as quickly and be able to repopulate. And so in those situations, there's sea urchins, but I wouldn't say in these habitats where there are sea urchin barrens, sponges are coming in and establishing I see more sea cucumbers. For some reason, sea cucumbers really love sea urchin barrens and more like different kinds of bristle worms. And so when I do see sponges being more of a pioneer in a area that's been disturbed, it's more like the docks in the harbors. And yeah, mostly like I mostly see that kind of thing. Like they clear out all the stuff on the heart and the on a dock, and usually sponges are one of the first things to show up. 
Interesting. And you, I think, read my mind a little bit because when I was thinking about the fact that you're studying in the kelp forest, you know, there's a classic example of the relationship between the sea urchins, the kelp, sea otters, and how the ecosystem can get out of balance pretty quickly for a number of reasons. And then the sea urchins just take over and the kelp go away. And then the otters hopefully come back in and start to take care of the urchins, but it's not always that simple. Uh, yeah. Thank you for adding a little more color to that interaction too. Yeah. And there's another tie in here. And in fact, I maybe got connected to you through, through previous guests who talked about dock fouling. And so it sounds like a, maybe an easy way for someone who doesn't know how to scuba dive to find sponges is to, to dock foul. Do you have other, do you have suggestions as to how someone who maybe wants to go observe one, what they could do, where they could look? Yeah. So you could definitely go to the docks and look over for sponges. They're also on in the tide pools, but I don't see as many because it's a lot shallower. So when the tide goes out, it's harder to see those sponges sometimes. They're like deep under a ledge. And so they're not necessarily in clean areas that you can really like look. I also suggest snorkeling. So sometimes in like rocky areas where there's eelgrass, you can snorkel and go down like five or 10 feet and take a look at some of these sponges. There's like these bright yellow ones that like to hang out in these eelgrass beds. And then even just snorkeling, I've been able to see these huge, one of our biggest species of sponges, the gray moon sponges. They are huge gray masses going along the rocks. And those would be really easy to spot. I've seen a gray moon sponge like eight feet long here in Santa Barbara. And I'm sure there's more to see of those. Okay. So Thinking back a little bit to, you mentioned that sponges might show up on the docks first after they've been cleaned up. How do they get there? So sponges can reproduce sexually or asexually, but in both ways, they create, so sexually they create a larva and this larva can swim around. It's got like a little tail and you can swim around and establish on wherever it finds suitable. And then when they asexually reproduce they basically bud off a part of their body and that's called like a gemmule and that can also go and establish on a cleared area but what's also interesting is these sponges can create cleared out surfaces too so sponges seasonally can expand and then contract so when they expand they push off anything else that's on like their rock or something and then when they contract there's all this cleared space for some other pioneering organism to establish so that's cool because them in themselves are habitat but then they're also making this other habitat for other things to be their neighbors which i think it's really cool one of the things that got me super into sponges was this paper that came out last year that was on sponge trails. So up in the Arctic, there was this group of scientists who were taking photos of these sort of tennis ball looking sponges. And they noticed there was like these trails behind them. And so they investigated this and they found that these were a trail of spicules that they left behind while they were moving. Hmm. And so it's okay, what is happening here? Like, Sponges can move. That is insane. <laughs> like physically move, not just expand and contract. 
And what they have to do is basically reconstruct their entire skeleton. And so, like, sort of like this, like, conveyor belt, they sort of just, like, reconstruct their skeleton to, like, what you would guess would say walk along the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> and then they break it off. Yeah, so they're, like, moving and they're breaking pieces and leaving spicules. And what, I don't think it was this paper, but another paper was talking about how these spicules that are left behind will help the sponge's offspring settle on the spicules. So it creates this harder substrate for their baby sponges to establish. So we're not exactly sure why they're moving, but it seems to also help their offspring. And it seems like these sponges might be trying to move somewhere higher up where they'll hit more current if they just happen to establish somewhere bad. So that was like mind blowing <laughs> to read about. Yeah, to that point in time, there were no documented species of sponges that would self-propel. Is that accurate? Yeah, in in that fashion of of moving forward, like not really. There was some research done, I want to say like 2016, where they did find sponges, what they call sneezing. And so these glass sponges, again, at the bottom of the ocean, deep, they would expand out like a little triangle and then just curl in on themselves and they expand back out. And they still don't know why they're doing that. They can't find like this pattern between the expanding and drafting and like the currents or anything. It just seems like it's totally random. So there has been a little bit of research on that, but it's very limited. So that expanding and contracting is causing them to propel? Um, not necessarily. So they're stopped. And then this expanding and contracting is like this more spongy looking part on top. So they like like whip around on their stock and then they're expanding and contracting. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and then there, if we're going to talk more about these cool deep sea sponges, there's some that are carnivorous. And so they're using their skeleton, their spicules to literally catch prey. And then they digest that. So it's, oh my gosh, so they're homemakers, but now they're eating the things that are in their home. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's so dark. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> so how about freshwater sponges? I know such a thing exists. Can you tell me a little bit about their diversity and where they're found? Yeah, so marine sponges are super diverse. And there's a lot that we're still discovering. But with freshwater sponges, it seems like it's this one group that just decided they're going to try to colonize freshwater. And so it's this group called Spongilidae, um, Spongilis, Spongilla, very sponge-oriented names. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's this one group, and you can find them all across North America, and I believe Europe, but definitely North America. And so they're bright green, and they're like these fibrous, non-spicule, containing sponges and they are bright green because of these photosynthesizing algae that lives within them and so it's called zoochlorella so the zoochlorella photosynthesizes has a place to stay and then it with this photosynthesizing gives the sponge some oxygen and helps them feed so that's a really great example of like how these sponges are like little houses and you can find them I found them all over Michigan in slow-moving rivers or streams, usually. And then I, when I was in Yosemite last summer, I was swimming. And I was 
it was so cool because I was like swimming with them because they were actually really big growing on the logs that fell in the like trees that fell into the river. So they're all over the place in, in freshwater bodies. So much to discover. I've, I've never seen one myself. <laughs> I've never looked for one, but I will certainly look for them now that I know that they're just yeah. down the road, basically in Yosemite. So. <laughs> yeah. And they're, I would look, it's great because they're more shallow because they have these photos symbionts. So they're pretty easy to spot when they are in a body of water. So how about any myths or misconceptions with respect to sponges that you'd like to dispel? Do they wear pants and ties like SpongeBob? I don't no, think so. No, but the guy who created SpongeBob was a marine biologist. Oh, so really? Yeah. <laughs> yes, he had that going for him. <laughs> so they do not wear clothing, but some, <laughs> interestingly, the some of the sponges that I found diving in the deeper spots, like along the kelp forest in Point Loma in San Diego, they will have basically, it seems like a carpet on them. So they're super like shaggy and because the spicules are coming out. And so it's catching all this stuff that we call flock that's in the water. And it just gives them like a sweater. Hmm. So that could be counted as clothing, I guess. Okay. So you're actually confirming <laughs> that. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a myth. This is fact. <laughs> Some other myths. People think sponges are soft, usually very not soft. They're pokey. They have these either glass or calcium carbonate spicules that are sticking out. So a lot of times, actually, when I pick up sponges, I will be stabbed by them. <laughs> and some of them have this chemical that makes your fingers numb. So that's always fun, too. <laughs> but I think people think they're soft because bath sponges are what they've been exposed to. And so the history of bath sponges is pretty interesting because... They started in like the Middle Ages. They got popularized in Greece. And so they would take this sponge and dry it out and the fibers would be left. It doesn't have any spicules, so it's a little more soft. And then they introduced sponges to Europe during like these Middle Ages and they became super popular. And actually people started like people in their armies would start using the sponges as padding under their armor. Or even weirder, some people would use sponges as contraception. So sponges have many uses. I'll leave I'll leave that as an exercise to the listener to, to think about what that <laughs> might look like. I don't even I don't even know. So maybe to wrap up, we talked a little bit about some keystone moments in your own progression. You know, some of the things you saw scuba diving and so forth. Do you have any recommendations for others in terms of books or documentaries, YouTube clips <laughs> that, that might be interesting? So I think the most available sponge content is actually from the deep sea. I've been watching for a long time. It's Evie Nautilus on YouTube. They do some live streams too, but they will post a lot of videos highlighting these deep sea sponges that they're finding all over the world. And that's a great one. And then Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute and Bari, they have a lot of great sponge content. But as, in terms of non-deep sponge stuff, there's not a lot of places to go to find this stuff. So a lot of what I did was just look at iNaturalists and to see how diverse they are. And if there's something that I want people to realize is that there's so many species of sponges that are undescribed and that we don't know anything about. Even in California alone, Tom, my advisor, 
has estimated that there's like over 100 species of sponges in California that are just undescribed. It's not like they're rare. They're, a lot of them are really common. They just haven't been described. And I myself have been trying to find great sponge content that's a lot more user-friendly, but I, there's not a lot. I am hoping in the next year or two to create a sponge guide. So you could look out for that. <laughs> Well, that'd be cool. And it, it, let me know when you do it and I'll be sure to share it with, I, I yeah. have a, a monthly newsletter. I try to share interesting things like that. Awesome. So I'll be sure to do that. Yeah. And basically the way I got inspired by sponges, like I me- mentioned briefly earlier, just like these scientific papers that I come across. And one of the scientific papers I came across was this study on this one glass sponge. And they took one of the spicules, big old spicule made of silica, like glass, and they shot a laser through it, and they found that it acted like a fiber optic cable. So it helped conduct light. And so all of these sponges at the bottom of the ocean are made out of fiber optic cables, basically. But is that just coincidence, like a byproduct, or are some of these sponges actually using this? So when I found this out, I was like, okay, we're at the bottom of the ocean. There's no light. But like, maybe there is light. And so I came across another paper that talked about how they found light at the bottom of the ocean at these hydrothermal vents. And so there's these hydrothermal vents spitting out all this, these chemicals and hot water. And that's creating a type of light that's, that we really can't see, but is there. And they found these shrimp that are using this light that they can, they only have receptors in the eyes to see this type of light. It's put me down this crazy sci-fi rabbit hole of, okay, there's sponges at the bottom of the ocean. They can conduct light. There's light at the bottom of the ocean. What's happening? <laughs> and so that's just a whole thing that we probably do not have time to talk about, but that is so cool just to think about. It is. And who's to say that the fact that we as humans, we've defined what the visual spectrum is, but who's to say that's the same for any other animal? I know you can right. look at the receptors and you can gain a, a rough idea, but so many animals, especially in the ocean, have not been studied to that extent. So yeah, why not? Right. Yeah. So weird. And I could just go on forever about it, but there's some jellyfish and like comb jellies that have receptors to see light, but they don't have a brain. So it's like, what do they do with that information if they actually can pick up on light? So it's just, we still, we don't know the biology of the most basic animals. There's so much going on that we just don't know anything about. As is, has made it through the pop science literature in the last decade or so, trees can communicate, but they don't have brains. It's right. just, just a totally different system. And we look at this all through yeah. a human lens and then later totally. discover, well, wait, there's other ways to make these things work too. So I, I love your enthusiasm for uh, for these subjects. Yes. So speaking of that and tying into sponge content, where can people follow you and uh, see more about your work? I'm on iNaturalist. I post a lot of my observations from scuba diving and tide pooling on there. My username is I'm Lichen today. That's when I used to really be in the lichens back in college. I just really like the name, so I'm sticking with it. And then my Instagram is the same. I'm Lichen today. 
yeah, I post a lot of stuff, especially just st- random stuff that I'm doing in the lab, like the weird creatures that I'm coming across. And Yep, it's a fun follow. I'll link to those for sure. And I guess the other thing I wanted to remind people of, if anyone out there is a scuba diver, I have a friend who actually just moved to the San Diego area and, and he and his wife keep posting scuba pictures. And I'm always telling them, put it on INAT, even if it's just a tiger shark or something like that, put it on INAT. I want to establish that habit because there's so many things that probably could use an, a few more observations on INAT. Yes, absolutely. Anything can be posted. Like, yes, especially in the marine environment. There's so many things that are un, undocumented or underdocumented. So I highly recommend. And do you have any other upcoming projects or anything you'd like to highlight? Well, I keep talking about deep sea sponges, and there is a possibility I will be working on them soon. So we actually had somebody from Embari, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. They do a lot of deep sea exploration with remotely operated vehicles. And George Matsumoto came down on Monday to give a seminar. And so I've been talking to him and my advisor. We've all been talking about getting up to Embari collecting some of these deep sea sponges and starting some work on them. Because for me, I thought, oh, we know so much about deep sea sponges because you know that's my whole world is just reading these papers. But I have been told by George and other people that we don't know anything about these sponges. Please do something about it. So I'm really hoping to start doing some work on deep sea sponges soon. That would be super cool. And Imbari is, I followed them for years it's just amazing the things that they find. And for listeners who don't know about Ambari and Monterey Bay, the middle of the bay is bisected by an ultra deep canyon. And I assume that's where they're going and where you'd be looking for the... Right. Yeah. So it's really accessible. The canyon is right there. And yeah, then they have these uh, these vehicles that they can uh, remotely pilot down to specific areas and and check in with lights and cameras and sampling gear and it's almost like a space vehicle but for underwater in a way yeah, yeah that's yeah, really that's exciting like, yeah it's like one of my dreams and i'm just like oh like it's getting closer <laughs> freaking out yeah I, I need to get some imbari representative on the podcast i hadn't really made that connection until today but yeah that, that would be a fascinating discussion yeah that would be so cool all right well is there anything else that you want to say before we close out Sponges are animals, and they sometimes have a lot of personality, even though they don't have a brain. (laughs) So yeah, I just hope people have a new perspective on sponges and invertebrates in general and have a good time trying to find them. I feel bad. I didn't. That that was something I was thinking of leading with is these are animals, yet they don't have all the things that we often associate with animals. So I'm glad that you squeezed that in here (laughs) at the end. (laughs) Yes, totally. All right. Well, Sienna, it's been a lot of fun and your enthusiasm is infectious for sure. Hopefully the Imbari research works out and you'll be coming back down the road telling us all about the discoveries you've made in the deep sea. Yes, that would be awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 
I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you. Thank you.